Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we have Dr. Susan Chubinskaya from Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois, where I used to work. Hi, Susan. Why don't you tell everybody all your titles? Hi, Kim, and hi, everybody. It is my great pleasure to be interviewed today. So my name is Susan Chubinskaya, as Kim said, and I am Vice Provost for Faculty Affairs at Rush University, but it is not the only title I have. I have a couple of more. I am also Vice Chair of the Department of Pediatrics for Research and Faculty Development, and I am Klaus Kutner, Endowed Professor for Research and Osteoarthritis. And I am also president-elect for the Orthopedic Research Society. I think I've got enough titles to share with you guys. Let's hold for there. Exactly. Why don't you tell everybody how you found yourself in this academic affairs world? It's an interesting question. And um, it wasn't something that I was born with thinking, okay, I would like to end up in faculty affairs role. I've been at Rush for the last 26 years. And the first uh, about 16 years, I was focusing to do my research, getting grants, building the lab, and building my name in the research community. However, in 2007, actually in 2005, I was approached to become the member of the promotion committee. And in 2007, I became the chair of the promotion committee. And because of my job, which people said was great, I was um, reappointed or reelected three times, which was the first time in the history of the promotion committee, that instead of being the chair for a year, I chaired the committee for three years. And during my tenure as the chair of the promotion committee, I introduced a lot of different things or novel things, which included revised policies and procedures. I also provided the analysis of the rate of promotion per department by gender and built it as a kind of institutional project, which I really took seriously. And I met with every chair of the department. I talked about the issues in his or her department. We identified the pathways or the strategies that we should take in order to increase the promotion rate in their departments. And I also did analysis on gender, whether there is any discrepancy or disparities in the promotion men versus women. And it was my first presentation at GFA annual meeting, which I went through in 2011. And so when I worked on the promotion committee during the same time, I was lucky enough or I was fortunate enough to be elected to participate at Mid-Career Women Professional Development Seminar, which is housed by and offered by WMC. And after that seminar, I came back to the institution and I thought that I would like to do something relevant to faculty affairs. I tried to find whether we have a dean of faculty affairs or associate dean of faculty affairs. And after my um, uh, search, which ended up with zero positions, I went to my dean, and he at that time, he was the dean and the provost of the university, and I asked whether such a position exists. And he told me that we don't have such position, but they're thinking of creating one, uh, understanding the importance of faculty for the university and overall success of our students. And so a year later, they created position of academic affairs, uh, which uh, actually housed four different offices, faculty affairs, global health, multicultural affairs, and community outreach program, 
it was a search, external search, and I was one of the seven um, applicants, and I ended up getting that position. The interesting part is that it was only 50% position, 0.5 FTE. The rest, 0.5 FTE, I was doing my research. And as you guess, by the end of the first year, I was basically dead because running two for uh, running new four offices, uh, building the office from scratch because we didn't have that office. And to be frank with you, many people had no clue, including our leadership, had no clue what that office would be. So I realized that by the end of the year, I can't continue with that um, office on 0.5 FTE. And then I changed my FTE, and with time, parts of the offices like multicultural affairs and community outreach uh, became uh, independent offices. I end up as 0.8 FTE in faculty affairs, 0.2 FTE as departmental leader, and moving forward in FY20, I will be 100% uh, vice provost of faculty affairs, yet I will continue my work as a researcher and as a vice chair of the department with no protected time. So that's my very brief story on how I end up in faculty affairs. So can you describe for us how your um, office looks, the academic affairs, faculty development portion, however you'd like to describe it? Everybody seems to, you know, all of our offices are set up differently, so people like to get a feel for Who's doing what? How many people? What percent FTE staff, faculty? Can you kind of give us a, a brief description of um, who's in your office? Absolutely, we'll be happy to. So my office, I basically divide it into three different pillars. One pillar is faculty affairs, actual faculty affairs, and people who are involved in who are doing work related to faculty affairs. They have director of my office, and I have two-staff position. I also have my personal assistant who is part-time in faculty affairs, faculty development, and part-time in global health. So the first pillar is uh, faculty affairs. Second pillar is Office of Mentoring Programs. And Kim, since the time you were the director of the Office of Mentoring Programs, this office expanded. And now we have four mentoring programs. We have research mentoring program, teaching mentoring program, mentoring program for postdoctoral student fellows, and women mentoring program. And as part of these four mentoring programs, we offer multiple faculty development programs and continuum education programs, and I'll be happy to talk about it at, um, uh, in a few minutes. So for that, for faculty development, if you call, or men, Office of Mentoring Program, I have director of the program, one one full FTE and one full FTE assistant for the program. And separately, I have the Office of Global Health, which remains from the initial structure of the academic affairs, which is now faculty affairs. And in that office, I have the director of the office, who is MD, and she is 0.6 FTE. And I have two assistants. One is full-time nurse who works for the office and part-time my personal assistant who shares her time between me and faculty development and global health. So overall, I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight people um, plus myself, which will be 100% FTE. And as we're moving into FY20 budget, I'm expecting to be able to hire two more FTEs in the office, one for 
the new program or Office of Postdoctoral Affairs. Basically, we are transforming postdoctoral mentoring program into the entire Office of Postdoctoral Affairs, and it will be under Faculty Development Office of Mentoring Programs. And the second uh, FTE will go into Faculty Affairs because we are doing some cool stuff and we need more people for um, for doing this work. So basically, we'll end up uh, in FY20, it will be Office of 11 people, including myself. That's amazing. Though all all you've done in the six years since I left. Now, I've noticed you didn't mention any faculty. So you don't at this time have percent efforts, little bits and pieces of any current faculty throughout the university offering courses or seminars? No, no. What we do, um, because as you know, you need full-time staff to run the programs. However, it doesn't mean that we don't work with our faculty. What we do, we use them, we involve them in different professional development programs that we offer. And now I will come and take, uh, I will spend a few minutes talking about these professional development programs. So one is teaching academy lecture series, which we established when you came were at trash. We are offering this program in it for eight years in a row. We had never canceled a single workshop, knock on wood. And basically that for that program is offered once a month, every third Tuesday of the month at noon. And the topics for this program are suggested by faculty who come and participate in these um, very interactive workshops. And basically, if you look at this program, we divide it into five pillars. It covers professional development, leadership development, um, workshops and education, workshops and research, how to conduct research, how to provide research integrity, how to conduct ethical research, and of course, bedside teaching and clinical operation. So um, topics, as I mentioned already, are suggested by faculty after each of the workshops, they fill the evaluation forms and they provide recommendations for more topics. Um, what we did, we offer continuum education for this series and the number of participants participants varies between 30 to 100, 150 people. Majority of these workshops are done by faculty just as volunteers, uh, just volunteering their time because they understand the importance of this program. So this is program number one. Program number two, which we established is, um, and actually we are mimicking AAMC, we established two new uh, continuum at programs, early career and mid-career. And the difference between what we offer versus what AMC offers, we offer it for men and women because we did come to realization that there is very few leadership development programs uh, offered to men. Of course, there are multiple programs offered through professional societies, but not as the leaders of the institution. So we are including men and women, and we ran our first cohort for mid-career last month, and it was extremely successful. We had very diverse pool of participants, which ranged from someone who just joined Rush as instructor to section chiefs wow. or division chiefs, right, and some very established and accomplished um Surgeon, plastic surgeon, and some of them you know, Kim, who came from Hopkins. Right. This is co-ed or males and females separately, you know, alone? No, they're all together. And the reason is behind because when we are in leadership positions, we need to work across the aisle. We need to work with both men and women. And that's why 
we thought that separating into separate cohorts, we would limit the exposure and opinions and the points of view which could be offered by different gender. So we deliberately combined both men and women in the same program. Another thing what we did differently for mid-career and we are doing differently for early career, which probably will change back, instead of having three days kind of conference type um, program, we broke it down into two modules, one and a half each. So one and a half day was offered in February and will be offered again in July. And same is for early career, April and August. But what we realized that people forget, and the reason we did it because our clinicians and educators are very busy, and we thought that for them to identify or dedicate three days in their life might be more challenging than one and a half day. Uh, so we separated into two modules. However, we realized that people forget about it. People don't pay attention that it consists of two modules, and we already had comments, oh, I didn't realize there's another module coming in coming up. So moving forward, we most likely combine it in three-day session. So the way we did it, we did Thursday afternoon. We started at noon until 5 and then all Friday. So we are probably will be combining it in Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So those are two new programs which are similar to what WMC offers. Another very exciting program that we are offering, Teaching Excellence Boot Camp. For five years, we were offering Teaching Excellence uh, program which ran for three months and basically what we were doing we had two hours interactive conversations or workshops every Monday starting the first Monday of March and that would last for 10-12 weeks and again uh, the reason was we were doing it in the afternoon to provide the opportunity for clinicians to come into the class after their whole day of clinic however we thought that in order to kind of accomplish um, critical mass or critical effect, it's better probably to do it as a boot camp. So I don't know the outcome yet, but the first boot camp and teaching excellence will be offered in June, June 6th through 8th. This year we are doing it only for internal participants, and if everything goes the way we anticipate, we will be looking forward to opening it up to external participants. And in all these programs, our educators are faculty. Um, those faculty open to the entire yeah. university, right, Susan? Not just it is open to the entire university. Programs, are, as I said, that extremely diverse in, in terms of who is participating. For teaching excellence course, we have faculty from all four colleges, from postdocs to professors, uh, all types of diversity one can imagine. And we are very excited about it because that provides the richness of conversations because as much as we have a structured curriculum, people learn from each other. And having different perspectives, having different generations in the classroom really provides this unique experience. So here are just few programs, few new programs that we develop now and that we are really looking forward to expand and to learn from. Another program that I'm working on, I don't have the outline yet, but we have a new president at Rush, and we are very excited about her. She was the dean at Mayer, and she was the dean at Robert Wood Johnson and Rutgers Medical School, and um, Dr. Shirin Gabriel, and she's the first woman president of Rush University, and it's the first time that we have a 
independent president of Russia University who doesn't have joint uh, jobs with the entire medical center. So she's very much interested in organizing or building presidential scholarship or fellowship for top level leaders, to create top level leaders. So I'm working closely with her in creating this program. Did she have such similar leadership programs or these presidential leadership programs at Mayo or Rutgers or elsewhere? Or did she just came up with this uh, idea when she got to Rush? I'm not sure. I mean, she was the dean there. So actually, it's a very good question. I need to follow up with that. But I think she's looking for kind of low-hanging fruits, and she's trying to identify her mark with with kind of impactful program. So she already offered bridge funding for people who just missed the cutoff for NH funding. So she's trying to come up with uh, programs or initiatives which would really be associated with her name. So this one, I'm not sure. I mean, she is well aware of ELAM. She didn't go to ELAM, but what she did experience what she has experience with when she was at mayor before she became the dean the way she became the dean that she was identified by mayor leadership as one of the potential or emerging stars and so they had the leadership program it wasn't her program but she was the recipient of the program so that program she was supported to go to Wharton School of Business she received her MBA and she got some additional exposures uh, to high-level leadership, which uh, determined or defined her success as a dean in both places. So by analogy to that program, she is trying to build something internally, but we don't know yet what it will be. Because we do know ELAM, it might be similar to ELAM. It might be something very customized to the institution. It might be something that people would work on the institutional project within the institution yet would be supported to go to, I don't know whether Wharton, but maybe two weeks Harvard business course or something similar. Right. We haven't decided yet. But I'm very excited about this new initiative that we are working on together. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing, I think, more powerful to change a culture or to really reinvigorate a culture than having a leader who takes the time to and the resource dedicates resource to resources to invest in leadership among faculty. I mean, real Absolutely. leadership, the protected time, the money, sending someone to these programs. That, that's something above and beyond just saying, you know, you need to invest in your leadership. But to actually have that kind of level of commitment really does, I think, changes a culture. Right. And not, to be frank with you, I'm not even sure yet whether it will be only for women or not. We haven't gotten to that point yet. My initial understanding was that it will be for whoever, for both men and women, but I need to hear from her what her view is on. And what is her name again? Dr. Shireen Gabriel. Actually, I'm even more excited because she's a rheumatologist. Um, so I am, I have a joint appointment in rheumatology and, and orthopedics. So she's kind of coming from the same field. And um, she was the president of American College of Rheumatology, which is a huge professional organization. I think it hosts about uh, 50,000 members from all over the world. She has multiple, multiple experiences um, 
which really make put her in a very very unique situation. In addition to that, she was the founder of the FDA initiative on epidemiological studies. She was part of the NIH Born and Joint Decade. I mean, she she has multiple national and international leadership experiences which position her uniquely. And we are fortunate to have her here. And not only fortunate, but I can't even tell you how excited we are that she's here. Plus, she's a woman, so what could be better? I I think that's so (laughs) interesting how many of us in the group on faculty affairs and and in our fields, we talk about the experience of getting new deans. That's always a a topic of conversation on the What Keeps You Up at Night event during the annual conference. And yet I've never, I'm trying to think back, I've really never heard a lot of conversation around new presidents. So you've raised something, I think, really interesting for us to think about and how do we form these pivotal relationships with new, not only new deans, but new presidents and understanding the organizational structure of an institution and and, and engaging in this appreciative inquiry with a new president to get her lay of the land. What does she know about academic affairs? What is her experience with it? What is her vision about it? Uh, what is, you know, what is, what what has she done in the past around faculty development and how does she see this, her ideas fitting into a new culture? So I just think this raises a whole new uh, area of interest for us to think about those of us who've been in the field a while leading up. We always talk, you know, leading up and managing up and directing up and how do we engage not only with our deans, but now with presidents. That brings a whole other interesting dynamic. Absolutely. And again, it might be more unique for healthcare institutions versus traditional universities, which have undergraduate schools and multiple, multiple colleges. As you know, Russia is kind of unique because Russia is a healthcare university, which is owned by the hospital. And um, we don't have, we have three small undergraduate programs which are joined with community college where students go for two years into Malcolm X Community College and then they enroll into Rush baccalaureate programs. But primarily all our programs are master or PhD or graduate medical education programs. So the uniqueness of Rush that though we have four colleges, all of us are connected into healthcare education and healthcare service and patient care, and that might be making or brings the president role much closer to the deans and to the faculty than when you talk about traditional universities where presidents or chancellors are kind of separated by many layers of leadership in between. For us, we even don't know what will be the function of the provost, what the job will be, and um, how closely or how remotely we will be working with the president. But it seems to me now that uh, I am as vice provost, which already um, implies that my job is over all colleges, not only within one college, as you know, Kim, that I will be working closely with her, very closely with her. And actually, I I really welcome that because her being the dean before and having experiences of working within the dean's office and now and having leadership positions within professional society, um, 
probably gives a different aspect to her understanding what the job of the president is and uh, and how she is going to frame it um, within Russia University. We don't know yet. She did talk about three keywords that she wants to lead by, learn, discover, and thrive, main, which means learn, focusing on education, and whatever, and preparing educators as well as preparing the next workforce, discovery all about research and discovery, and thrive all about um, preparing faculty, professional development, preparing leaders, uh, preparing the uh, working on the environment or shaping the environment. So we really expi- inspired by her being able to summarize her vision into these three words. And basically, it is perfectly aligned with Rush strategic plan, which was developed prior her arrival here. Yeah. So she's framing her vision around these three words, but we don't know yet what will be her cabinet, uh, what kind of org structure we will have. At this point, we have president, we have the provost, we have four vice provosts, and then the deans. But how it's going to continue, I don't know yet. So, yes, to your point in terms of working closely or kind of understanding the leadership landscape and going beyond the colleges is not only extremely important, but it becomes critical because many of us, members of GFA, have positions outside of the dean's offices or more than just within dean's offices. So those who are vice provosts, associate provosts, program directors, which are not necessarily housed within a given college, we do work across colleges and over the university. And that's why working closely with the president, with the chancellors, or people at that level, in my mind, is absolutely critical, not only for our success, but for the success of our faculty because it opens opportunities for different resources. It opens opportunities for different support. Uh, And I don't mean only financial. As you know, Kim, for example, I'm referring to the Board of Governors. We are working closely with the Board of Governors. If you are limited within the structure of the dean's office, one may not be exposed to the trustees and upper echelon of leadership. So, yes, we are kind of unique, but it is very pleasant uniqueness, which I am really embracing. I can't help but just sitting here almost just with a shock feeling, but I know you, you can handle this better than most. But think about, you know, what, how you started off this conversation. You know, many of us, most of us, do not go to school or have any graduate or postgraduate training on how to be a dean. And yet you just got done describing this whole milieu with a new president and governance and collaboration and innovation and culture and all these things that you figured out on your own, how to navigate this new leadership structure. And I just can't, I can't help, of course, think of our faculty, especially junior faculty, new faculty who come on board our institutions And not only are they now um, figuring out how to do their medical practice or their research, but they're also learning to navigate a new culture with different 
expectations and ways of being and and new new styles of um, authority and and lines of communication. And then another layer of mid and late career faculty who've been doing something for a long time, but then they are put in an environment where they have a new chair or dean or president. So it, I can't help but think of faculty development opportunities around helping our faculty understand how to navigate change and how to 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 exist and understand and learn something that you obviously it's innate for you to figure this out but I, I know we can all think of probably many examples of faculty members who when faced with change really struggle because they they are not used to a lot of uncertainty their their training their medical training their graduate training has been very much structured or marching along a certain path and very clear expectations of them. And then boom, life happens and there's a lot of uncertainty. So I very much appreciate your comments. And I tell you a couple of things that I think would help me along the way. As you all guys can figure it out, I'm not native English speaking, right? Speaker. So I immigrated 27 years ago. And so for me, that adjustment probably was much more striking or um, stressful than any other adjustments I experienced over my professional life. But with all seriousness, I can tell you what helped me to navigate, as we like to say, this sea of change, to navigate through all these leadership positions. First of all, as my mom always said that I was born a leader, I was natural leader, and I always was not shy of taking more responsibilities and more leadership positions, whether very small ones to be the chair of the advisory committee or to be the chair of the promotion committee. And uh, actually, when I became the chair of the promotion committee at FASH, you can, might remember, I was not the chair of the department, and it was pretty much unheard of that it would not be a prominent leader of the institution who would chair that committee, because that committee is extremely strategic committee. However, bringing all these innovations that I described earlier during this conversation really positioned me in a very um, favorable way. First of all, as a chair of the promotion committee, I work very closely with my dean and the provost. So it helped me to... or it. Uh, I was able to demonstrate what I can accomplish, what I can get done, and what kind of leader I could develop into. Number two, as a chair of the promotion committee, I worked very, again, through innovations that I offered and I developed, I built great relationship with every chair of the department, even with most challenging ones. Even if I was told that this chair who is the chair for 40 years will never listen to me and will never do what I asked him to do. I was successful in accomplishing my tasks. I was able to educate chairs or their designees on how to prepare packets. I spent countless hours working with chairs, helping them to do that or advising them how to improve the processes within departments. 
And then I went on something which no one did before. I went on the educational spree, educating faculty one-on-one in small groups as part of the departmental meetings about the promotion um, process and demystifying promotion, promotion process in general. I presented it many times as part of GFA and AAMC annual meetings. But what it helped me with, first of all, again, to become known, to increase my visibility within the institution, also build my relationship with faculty. I know that I helped hundreds, if not thousands of faculty to go through each promotion step. And I can't walk on the hallways of Rush without bumping into every single person who I met, who I influenced or who I helped in their promotion. So that was number one. Number two, I learned a lot about leadership, becoming a leader in my professional societies. Again, I became the member of the board and executive board of International Catholic Repair Society almost at the same time in 2007. So basically, for me, when I became full professor in 2007, that's when it was a turning point for me into other leadership or administrative leadership positions. So being the member of the board, being the member of the executive board, being the treasurer of a big society, positioned me well within the society and, again, provide me, provided me with the opportunities to learn from the society, to bring some innovations from the institution to the society and vice versa. Again, we keep learning as we go. We are mentees all the time. There's so much to learn. And having exposure to different settings, to different organizations, only enriches us. And that's how I was able to position myself in the Orthopedic Research Society and actually win the election against a very prominent, very highly successful researcher from another institution, male counterpart. And it is a society of 4,500 international members with about 70% of them being men. Yet I was able to win the election and become second vice president and now first vice president. And in February 2020, I will become a president of the Orthopedic Research Society. Again, having these experiences, and by no means I'm trying to compare myself to our president, but she also had these different leadership experiences within professional societies. So having these experiences provided me with the broad knowledge of what the leadership is, how to work with the board, how to negotiate, how to uh, accomplish challenging tasks, how to build the trust and relationship. And all of that is very useful in GFA work and in faculty development work. So I think that And as I mentioned earlier, I was never shy of getting more and more leadership responsibilities. I was also on the steering committee for GFA for six years. And again, I learned from all of you, and I keep learning. I keep learning from all of you, and I adapt a lot of programs or adapt experiences that you talked about here. And I know that I mentored a lot of folks at GFA on what we have accomplished at Rush. So my point is that there's, and of course, it was never strategic for me, okay, now I need to become the member of the board, and then I need to run for this position, or I need to run for this leadership position. It kind of happens um, naturally, based on where I was in my life, both professionally and personally. But altogether, it helped me to accomplish what I was able to accomplish, and believe I'm still looking forward to some next stages 
of my leadership and professional development and positions. Everything you say is so important, and that I like the the second thing of being involved with professional societies. In our leadership programs at Hopkins, we too always encourage folks to step up to offer um, themselves and their their service balanced judiciously with the ability to say no to things that are not mission centric or that perhaps would that are not uh, come with resources attached to them or don't have a title attached to them. Um, and we oftentimes encourage that or help that practice of saying no in consultation with a mentor or an inner circle of people. But uh, I, I sometimes worry about that uh, that balance of taking positions at your institution and positions in the profession, professional society and being able to, to be to do all jobs well, because I know you and your work ethic is if you do something, you get it done. And so I think it's also important to emphasize that you take on these positions, you deliver because as a leader, nothing speaks louder than your reputation as being someone who can execute and implement. You have, we all have great ideas. Everyone in academic medicine or in any higher institution obviously has the brains but to be able to implement and execute and deliver, I think is a little bit uh, you know, less common. And so I know you've done that. And um, I think that's so wise to say professional societies are great opportunities to learn all those skills you talk about as long as you are in balance with your work at your home institution and as long as you're um, delivering. Uh, yes and no. <laughs> I agree with everything you said, but what I would argue that it's not always possible to have titles and resources available for you in order to uh, take on the leadership position or responsibility, especially when it comes to professional societies. All the work we do in professional societies, it is a volunteer work. You don't do it because you're going to be compensated. You don't do it because um, you might want to do it because it might bring you to the next level in your own institution, or it will add national, international recognition for you within society, which would maybe position you better for NH funding or whatever other connections and network that you would like to develop. However, you do it in the professional society for multiple reasons. One, you want to give back. Same as within the institution. You want to get back. You want to uh, empower the next generation. You want to um, transmit the knowledge that you built to someone to who is your student, who is your trainee, or just to help the profession profession in general. Second of all, um, building the network. We never know where we're going to end up. We never know where which institution we're going to be. We never know who our collaborators could be. And becoming leaders in professional societies, and I'm not talking about being the president, but even part of different standing committees or organizing workshops or... Um, running, being spotlight speaker or organizing the conferences, yes, it is very time consuming. However, again, you have the opportunity to shape the future of your professional society. And it is so, so exciting. And again, you increase your visibility as a leader 
as both a professional leader in terms of, let's say, in orthopedics as a researcher in the field of orthopedics, as it is for me, but also as administrative leader. And people come to you for not only research collaboration, but for mentorship advice. I'm mentoring so many women, and not only women, but women specifically in the Orthopedic Research Society. You can't even imagine from the field of um, engineering, bioengineering, uh, clinicians, multiple, multiple women come to me asking for um, support, for advice, for letters of um, uh, support or evaluations for promotion, and actually from the institution that many of you are working in. And I met these people through the professional society, and I'm helping them as a leaders in your institution, knowing you as a leader in, for example, Hopkins or UCLA or other places. So you can't separate one network from another network or one circle from another one. In one, at one point, all of that is intertwined, and all of us are building the network of professionals so, yes, especially I agree with you when we come, we talk about leadership positions within your institutions. You want to have resources because in order to be impactful, in order to accomplish something, and in order to realize that leadership is serious when they offer you positions, you need to have resources and the title. However, at least it is the case at Rush. First, you need to show what you are capable of, and then you might be given resources and titles. Yeah. That's how it happened with the promotion committee, which I chaired 13 years or 12 years ago. It, I mean, yes, yeah, the chair of the promotion committee, it's a nice title, but it was zero resources. It was no protected time. But the benefits which I got from be doing that and just tremendous and priceless. And again, no one asked me to do analysis by departments. No one asked me to do gender uh, equity analysis in terms of promotion. No one asked me to do educational sessions with chairs and faculty. It was my own initiative, but I built the path for my future leadership at Rush. So we never, we cannot predict how a given activity or a given task is going to play out in our late, later leadership positions or leadership roles, but all of it adds up and all of it, it helps to build who we are, build our experiences, and hopefully position ourselves for leadership jobs, whether within the institution or outside. So I, I love how you, you describe this, and I'm, I'm totally you know tracking with you because I'm the same in terms... We're obviously both extroverts, so that's, that's kind right. of easy. So then we both kind of can um, pick up an idea and run with it. And what would you have to say, some advice for our friends who are not as extroverted as we are? Maybe they're they're more introverted, they're, they're not as confident, or they're a little bit more shy or reserved, uh, but they have the ideas, they have the energy, they have the vision, and the idea of going as you did and meeting with all those chairs and their designees and working with them over time to build that trust, to help them understand uh, the, the data on the promotions and teaching them about the process and building that relationship, all those relationships over time took a lot of energy for you. But as an extrovert, it was probably uh, a little easier for you. So what kinds of advice could you offer to our colleagues who aren't um, as confident or facile in that that ability to go and just sit down and talk with anybody? It's a very good question, Kim. Actually, it's a really good question. 
I think what one needs to do is identify at least one person or few people who they feel comfortable with within leadership or those who can bring them to, who can be their sponsors or talk about them at the next circle and start working with these people. It's, it might be easier for them to do it one on one rather than bigger group. Try to, and um, so that might be the solution. Another solution which could be you become more outgoing or more extrovert if you consider yourself being a subject expert. Because uh, because if you know that, if you know what you're talking about, if you know the facts behind, if you know that you've done your homework and you understand the problem, it's usually much easier to talk about it rather than something that you might have vague understanding. The reason I'm saying that, that when I just came to, when I started working in this country, I'll never forget my first professional um, conferences where I had to present. I was dying before every single talk. And the reason behind was, there were two reasons. One, I was worried about my accent and that people will not be able to understand me. And second, I was worried about not being the expert in the field because I was junior postdoc. I was learning. I came from a different field. I was not in orthopedics before. I was in cancer research. So I came to a very unknown field and I did not feel confident. I was worried that every my presentation will end up with thousands of questions that I won't be able to answer because I don't have background. But as I was moving up, as I was learning, as I was establishing my position within the field, confidence came in. And uh, being confident in the or being the subject expert positions you very differently. It makes you it makes you confident, and being confident helps you to be more outgoing or outspoken about the subject matter. So that would be my few. Suggestions. I'm not sure whether you agree with that, Miss. I'm sure that everyone had their own recommendations or ideas on how to handle it. But I think that if you start from small circles that you do feel comfortable with, people who you trust, and if you become a subject expert, that might help you to kind of open the doors and speak at different levels. I totally agree. That is wonderful advice. A safe environment with people you're already comfortable with, and the confidence that comes from knowing your work and knowing the data, and perhaps an, a, an attitude or a mindset of you are sharing information. I imagine with, when you met with all those department chairs, again, walking in as a subject matter expert, you also had the feeling of, listen, I have some important information for you, some data you're probably not aware of, or a new process, and I want to help you. So that kind of that open heart, uh, servant right. leadership attitude of I'm here to help you and I know this is going to help your faculty. This will help in turn you. It will help your department. That orientation of being helpful uh, I think will also um, make the conversation a little easier if you know I'm here offering you something. I'm not asking for something, which maybe a lot of faculty members come from that perspective of whenever I meet with leaders, I'm usually asking for something. Well, here would be an opportunity where you are offering something. So that's another You're absolutely right. I mean, that I couldn't agree more because this whole approach was I'm here to help. 
I'm here to share the information which you probably are not aware of because either you're a new leader in your department and you have no clue how it was done before, or um, you have never thought about it. And if it's a good leader in any department, any good leader wants his or her faculty to be successful. Any good chair of the department wants his or her faculty to be promoted because it's kind of the logical step going through uh, academic ladder. So when you come with the notion that I'm not here to ask, I'm not here to criticize, I'm here to help and offer my help, how I can help you to be successful is um, perceived very differently. Right. And then you people kind of open their arms and they embrace help. Because right. no, no one is perfect, no one knows everything. So if someone is coming, um, volunteering their time and effort and passion um, to help the leaders, I would be surprised if someone would say no, though I did have a few people who were not interested of doing that. Another thing which helps passion, when they see that you're passionate about what you're doing, if they see value of what you're doing, they will embrace it. They will uh, call upon, they will ask you for your help because nobody will know what the work was done behind the scenes but upfront will be their success and promotion of their faculty as in the case we are discussing now that's exactly right and as employees i think the orientation i've always taken is my job my number one job is to make my boss look good so if you are right. going to go meet with leaders and you're ultimately going to do something as you're saying that's going to help them and make them look good Rather than so many leaders every day in, day out, they're dealing with problems and people bring them problems and conflicts and challenges and, and a lot of nail-biting kind of tricky, sticky issues. Geez, when you could walk in as a breath of fresh air and I'm here to bring you help, that I think would endear you even more to leaders. So not only seeing your passion and your enthusiasm and your superior knowledge about this skill set and having this expertise, but also offering a solution rather than the typical thing that leaders face is, which is a lot of problems, I think is going to uh, really serve you well for future leadership positions when something comes up or when an opportunity does arrive. They'll remember, oh, I remember that Susan Chubinskaya. She is really good. She knows what she's talking about. She really helped us out. She took a lot of initiative. So I think that's uh, you can't lose with that. I totally agree with you. There's one, yes, Kim, and there's one more thing which made that uh, journey as a, very pleasant, actually, and very exciting. Support from my dean and my provost, because if I wouldn't be supported by someone who was above me or who I reported to, uh, it probably would be very different, because people feel, especially chairs of the department, they know when you are supported or not. And if they know that you have the dean behind or the provost behind, and it's so, it is someone who they report to, they most likely will be open to conversation. This has been wonderful, Susan. Is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we close out our conversation today? Yes, I would like to share with you about, I mean, one of your questions was any exciting, any interesting thing that you're working on now and I'm going to present it this summer GFA, but before I present it, I just want to mention it because I'm extremely excited about the projects that we've built and continue building. And some of you may have heard already I presented last summer 
we built a unique faculty management system. And the reason I'm calling it management system, not the database, because it's a living organism. It's not a steady database. It is a system which works on the workflows, which combines um, entry with all the necessary data being entered. But the most important, it combines annual performance review, professional development goals, professional development strategies that my office and other offices are building, including departmental professional development strategies, it combine, and it combines promotion process. So basically, if faculty, it has built electronic CV template, which is connected to annual performance review. What I mean under that, for example, I'm entering under my CV, my educational efforts, let's say, teaching a given course. That information is immediately connected to my annual performance and my educational goal. So when I go to my annual performance portion of the system, what I've done over the years is already there. I just need to comment whether I accomplished my goal or not, and I need to set up my new goal. So we basically connected faculty life from day one when they accepted the offer to last day when they exit the institution into one system. And I'm extremely excited about it. It is, it's been three, four years project. We are not done yet, but we accomplished the majority of it. And now we're just optimizing and implementing. And it was all done for, um, uh, customized for each college. As you know, that the trash, each college wants to do it their own way, but we were able to customize it for each promotion committee, for each annual performance review connected to the merit increases and metrics and overall with satisfaction in terms of the professional development goals and leadership development and pace of professional development. So I'm extremely excited about this project. I can talk for another hour about it, but probably it will be next time when we discuss it. Well, I just dragged myself up off the floor and I, like I wish we could have an audio version of the emoji of that guy with the back of, or the top of his head blown off because that is amazing. I cannot even begin. Yes, this has to be a whole other conversation. But briefly, amazing. I've been, Thank you, I'm, a, I'm a data person, as you may remember, data, data, data yep. and it drives me absolutely bat poop crazy that we cannot have data that are integrated like this. So I cannot believe. All right. So just we're going to do a teaser here. Is this a homegrown faculty management system or have you worked with an outside vendor to develop this? I'm working with the outside vendor to develop, but uh, we customized a lot of things specifically for us. And uh, the most exciting part that I can run any reports as each department college institution wants, including from small internal one on the landscape of diversity to how many people we had uh, on a given position over a given period of time to reports required by any accredited agencies, by High Learning Commission, by LCME. I mean, uh, reports which are required by HR. I mean, finally... <laughs> Finally, I combined all faculty employed by Rush, private practice, community physicians from other affiliated hospitals, 
in one system, under one umbrella, under one annual performance review, under one CV template. So I am so, so excited about it. I just can't. I, I need a blankie and a pacifier. I, I have to sit in the <laughs> corner of a room and I'm going to rock back and forth. This is unbelievable. You want to come back? Can I get you? Can I back get you back to Russia? I can offer you a position. <laughs> oh boy, this is huge! With that, I'm going to leave everybody out there. This was has been Susan Chubinskaya from Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. We're going to get her back here to talk about the faculty management system. That ends another episode of the Faculty Factory Podcast. Thanks, Susan. Thank you, Kim, and thank you all for listening, and it's my great pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.